us. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to look into your word tonight. What a privilege. Thank you for making us men and women, boys and girls, young people of the, of the word. Lord, we were born desiring our own word, born desiring our own ambitions and thoughts and desires, and they were going to drag us to hell. But you have changed our lives. You've given us new life in Christ. We're new creatures. We love your word. We love to hear it taught. We love to listen to it. We love to be under it. We love to submit to it. And Lord, when we don't, we feel horrible. <laughs> because we know that is our life. And we know it brings us joy when we hear God's word and we say, I need to do that. That will bring God glory and it will bring me joy. So I pray you'd help us tonight as we look into a dear Old Testament passage. As you develop a new leader to care for your nation. Lord, there are so many lessons to be learned here. We pray that you would make them clear to us. We would apply them to our lives. We'd live for you, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. It's interesting, God's always kept a steady stream of types. We'd call them Christ-like types, in the Old, particularly in the Old Testament. Um, he keeps them in front of his people because that's the main theme of the Old Testament, a coming Messiah. It's not a, like we talked about last week, it's not a book of morals. It's a, it's a book about Christ. And so he keeps this steady stream of these types in front of him. Joseph was the type as we end at, jo, uh, end at Genesis, as you remember. And now God is about to raise up another type at the beginning of Exodus, who will again lead his people. But now God is about to do something extraordinary. He doesn't just raise up men. He raises up a whole movement of people. Uh, and, and what's fascinating is God uses these, what, what often people would think, well, I'm just a nobody. He just loves to use nobodies. Uh, particularly as you study the scriptures, you find people of, on their own before they come to Christ or, or even in their family situations, they're nobodies. And, and I, I think that's really encouraging. Anybody in the nobody crowd? I hope we all are, man. It's a great crowd to be in. Because God loves to use nobodies. And he has a plan for them. He has a role for them. It's already predetermined. So as we turn into this book, and particularly the second chapter here, and we think about what God's doing, he's already laid the promises down in Genesis. Jacob and Joseph said, don't put my bones here, man. We believe in the promises of God. So that plan's already laid. Now, um, here in Exodus, we're going to start to see some of that impact. We're going to see this providential ways of God and all these promises start to be unfilled and he uses the most unlikely people to do it. But another thing, is you, as you study the Old Testament, I think what I enjoy um, most at times is people are people. They're no different. They may ride in a chariot versus a you know, sedan. Uh, they may walk and uh, have to get water from the river, but they're, they're very much the same. They react the same. They sin the same. They repent the same. It's, people are people. We're just fallen. And when we study this, you'll see what I mean. But when we crowd to God, he does deliver us. And that's, that's what's beautiful. So let's look at a couple of thoughts tonight as we look at Exodus chapter 2. One, God's response to man's wickedness. God's response to man's 
wickedness. The Lord, the Lord's going to respond to Pharaoh's murderous scheme, right? Last week we looked at this massive murder of babies. It's, and then remember at the end he just turns to genocide. He calls on the citizens of Egypt just to kill all the children, kill all the baby boys. But the Lord's going to respond to that. And he's responding to Pharaoh's murderous schemes here by raising up, of all people, a male leader. It's exactly what he was trying to stamp out. And this male leader, he'll lead people out of bondage and into freedom. And this man, Moses, he is considered one of the greatest men of the Old Testament. Even to this day and down through time, he remains a great patriarch to the Jews, and he should. He's a great patriarch to us because he's a type. We learn about Christ and the coming Messiah through him. We see him through God using him, protect a nation that the seed of Christ is in to bring him to, to us, to the cross. He's also been abused. The law of Moses was important to the Jews. They felt like if they were close to Moses, if they could walk the way Moses did, keep Moses' law, they could inherit the kingdom of God. So there's great abuse there as well. But nonetheless, Moses is a great leader. But leaders aren't born by themselves, are they? And often God uses many people in many different ways to bring about his divine will for his ultimate glory. Notice in verse 1 and 2, Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was beautiful, we'll hold off there for a minute. These verses introduce us to a new group of God's people. Right, We've been with Jacob and Joseph and the brothers for quite some time in Genesis, but here these verses introduce, to a, introduce us to a new group of people whom he's going to use mightily. And you notice first that we learn of Moses' family here. This is Moses' family. They come from the tribe of Levi. And this would soon, soon this would be the tribe uh, that would produce priests who would present the people before God, come in their place and minister before them in God's presence. And I think it's very fitting that Moses comes from them because he will go before the people on behalf um, of them in the presence of God. The tribes are uh, all very, very, uh, very distinguished. You can see it's been 400 years now. Close to 400 years have gone by, so these tribes are distinguished. So they're marrying within tribes even, at, and, and to keep that lineage as those tribes grow here in the land of Egypt in the middle of Goshen. And so we begin to see that this verse um, is starting to share there's a new family. Now, notice the verse does not tell us the names of Moses' parents. Um, but later the narrative does. If you look over to chapter 6, verse 20, we get the heads of Israel here. And verse 20 tells us that Amran, not Anan, but Amran, <laughs> if we have an Anan here, Amran married his father's sister, Josabed, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, in the length of Anram's life, was 137 years. So now we're introduced to Moses' family. This is Amran and Josabed. These, these are very godly people, as we'll see as, as we watch things uh, un, unravel here. Now, notice that Amran marries his aunt. Well, in some cases, that's a little, just a little nerve-wracking, but not in this time. 
Notice their ages are, they live 130 years old. These are large families. Women are bearing children long, long, uh, deep into their ages. Probably a lot more than what you feel comfortable talking about. Uh, They just bear children. Um, uh, You can see still the effects of sin are still bringing the ages down, but these people are living long ages. Uh, The gene pool is fairly shallow still. It's not that big a deal at this point. And and think about this. If you have these large families over great spans of time, there's all kinds of ages. Now, when I was in... When I was in... in Sixth grade, when I was in fifth grade, fourth grade, my sister got married. She's much older than me. She had a child in sixth grade. In my eighth grade year, I got called into the principal's office. Thought I was in trouble as usual. And he said, we have news for you. Your mom just had a baby. Or, I mean, she, well, we, she told us that she was pregnant and she was going to have a baby. I don't know why they used our school to do that. Um, it's disturbing. Um, so my little sister is an aunt to her older nephew. It happens. <laughs> so you can see with age and, and, and of course, my mom was, wasn't expecting my little sister. Um, uh, but my sister, uh, there's 21 years between my two sisters. And so uh, this stuff happens. And, and certainly this is not a problem within the legacy of people in the Old Testament. But notice in verse 2, Amran and uh, Josebed, they have a boy and his name is Moses. And they call him beautiful. The ESV says fine. These are both really good words. Notice right there in the middle of two. When, they, when she saw that he was beautiful. Now, I think most people look at that and they go, oh, he's a beautiful baby. We'll keep this one. That's not what it's talking about um, at all. And remember, remember what's going on. They're killing every boy they can find. And, the, and all of the paintings inside tombs and stuff show that this was happening. Many of the babies were thrown into the Nile, eaten by crocs and drowned and so forth. They were killed often. And so, so, that, so we just can't say, well, boy, Moses was cute, so they kept him. I think there's a little more to this. I started chasing this word down. It's uh, tab in, in Hebrew. It's translated 75 different times as better or favorable throughout the Old Testament. So the idea of the word, and the translators are trying to do their best to bring it across into English, means as they looked at this son, they realized there was something about this kid. Not so much outside, but probably spiritually, internally, they knew that God was doing something through this child. It's fascinating to think about as they looked at it. And I think we probably look at all of our children wondering what God's going to do with it. But this is tough times, man. The nation is being whipped into submission. They're in full-blown slavery. They have no lives of their own. It's difficult. And here, in the middle of this difficult life, they're given a child that seems to have favor by God. The point is, there was something special about him. Take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 7, verse 20. um, And stick something in there, because we're going to come back and forth to this passage. Um, This is our resident... Old Testament history guy, and his name is Stephen. He preached one sermon that we know of, and it went over well with some and not so well with others. They stoned him after he was done with it. Um, But he gives such a great detail to the history of Israel, um, probably better than their own people understood, particularly because he knew God was involved in all of it and and there was a coming Messiah. But notice how he, he relates this. He relates the birth of 
Moses. He says it was at this time that Moses was born. He's going down through their history. And he was lovely, now notice this, in the sight of God. So you know I'm not just fishing around with that word. I wanted you to understand that. I wasn't just going, well, I think this is, there's got to be a better word here. This is what Stephen does. He says, look, God saw this child in the sight of God, and God saw he was lovely. Now, certainly God thinks all children are lovely, but here's the idea again. There's a uniqueness to this child. It's as though God sets his love on this child very early because he has a great role for him. Now, as you go back, um, oh, oh, one other one, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23. I have this one in my notes, so just listen. By faith, when he was born, Hebrews eleven twenty-three. 23, um, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw that he was a beautiful child. So again, these unique words, and that Greek word talks about the uniqueness of the child. So there's something about this kid. Now, clearly, um, Amran and uh, Josebed saw something special in this child. However, they probably did not realize all that God was going to do. Think about this boy. He's going into a basket. He'll see a burning bush. And at the end of his life, even after his death, Michael the archangel and Satan himself will fight over his body. Jude 9, read it. And then tell me what it means. Because <laughs> it's amazing. And guess what Satan probably would have done with that body? I mean, who knows? They've made him a, so many religions have made him a, a person of worship anyway. But I mean, think about that. From this basket to a, a, a divine fight over his body. I don't think they understood all that was coming. Notice back in chapter, chapter 2, the end of the, uh, chapter 2 and the end of verse 2, it says she hid him for three months. So Josephed hid Moses in the house for three months. Not an easy thing to do. You remember them during those months? They're starting to get their vocal cords. Everybody's hunting for babies. There's a price on their tag of baby boys. They're trying to eradicate this nation. This is, this is a terrible injustice that's happening. And she's trying to hide this uniquely special child that she believed God gave her. I think it just tells you Egypt's hunting these children. They're hunting them. It's, it's, man, it's sad to think about that. These little boys have not changed. The same little boy, maybe it's a grandchild or one of your children, nothing's changed in them. They haven't evolved. <laughs> They're just the way our children came out of, our, out of mother's womb. Little toes and fingers and little lips and that pure skin when they're born. I mean, you know that, don't you? It's been a long time since that we've had a newborn, but I can still remember them. They have a unique smell to them most of the time. It's good. Um, right? I mean, you know what I'm talking about. That's what's going on, and they're hunting these little guys. They're hunting them. But God in his providence, thank the Lord, God is going to use this pharaoh and he's going he's gonna to use not only this pharaoh um, because he's going to use this pharaoh's daughter. That's what's amazing. And, and one of the things I don't think he accounts for, what he doesn't account for is he thinks I'm going to eradicate these children, I'm going to eradicate this line, is he doesn't account of the heart of a woman. He didn't know how passionate women are for their children. 
and what they'll do and what great lengths they'll go. So I just stood in amaze as I counted the women. There's Josebed, there's Miriam, there's the Pharaoh's daughter, then there's Zipporah. All four women in this text play a major role in the coming of Christ, in a sense. We'll talk about that more as we go on. Verse 3 and 4, look with me here. But when, we, but when she uh, could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket and covered it over with tar and pitch. And then she put the child in it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. So Moses' mother, Josephette here, I think she's a brave woman. I mean, she's working hard to protect this child. Do you imagine every day waking up knowing that somebody's hunting your baby? I mean, it's like a bad movie. This is, this is serious. So, so she's, she's, she's brave, isn't she? And she's an intelligent woman. She devises this plan to keep her son safe. She comes up with this plan. I'm sure Moses', Moses dad's involved. Uh, Amran is very much involved in this, and I'll prove this here in a second in a verse. Um, and, and yet, as this child grows, she has to get creative to keep him hid. They start moving, right? They start talking and wiggling, and all kinds of stuff starts coming out of him. And by three months, they're pretty vocal, aren't they? Yes, moms? And so she is hiding. This is not, you know, well... Aram and Josebed got, you know, back 40 back here to themselves, you know, where it's nice and quiet. They're slaves. You have no freedom anywhere. They'll kick your door in at any moment. And so she's getting creative here. In the Hebrew, it says that uh, Josebed made an ark of papyrus. That's what the Hebrew says. It's very fascinating. We call it, I think the NASB said, what, a wicker basket here? Well, this is the second ark we know of, right? There was another ark that God put eight people on that encased in all reality the seed of Christ. And here, though, the seed of Christ doesn't necessarily come through the Levite tribe of Moses. Because of what God is going to do with Moses, the seed of Christ will be protected. And God will, through Moses, lead them out of that land. And Judah's tribe will be established. And down through time, the seed will be passed and Christ will come. So it is absolutely fascinating what's going on here. This little basket, this little ark of Paphras. Uh, the word's not used terrible much in the scripture, so I just did a quick search. And it came to Isaiah verse 18. It says this is, he's listing all these nations that have come against the nation of Israel, the northern tribes against them. And he's listing them, and he's going to let them know, I'm using you to, take care, take, to bring my, my people who are disobedient into captivity, but I'm marking you, I'm coming after you later. That's what God's word's doing. So early on in Isaiah, he's listing out. So he gets to one of these, I think it might be Crush or Ethiopia, one of them in there. But it says that these people are coming, and he says, when, when sends an envoy, an invoice, an envoy by sea, so there's a bunch of ships coming, and it says, even the papyrus vessels on the surface of the water. So these reeds that we often think um, are papyrus that we know that come from scrolls and paper and all of that, they built ships out of this stuff, and they covered it with pitch. And if you've ever messed around with pitch, water doesn't get through it. It doesn't get through it, and it's watertight. And so she's got this little, neat little cradle that's floating probably in the reeds near the shore of the, of the um, 
Nile. Now, most important here is Josebed is a faithful woman. She, she seems to be a woman of faith, and, and we find her in, in, in Hebrews chapter 11. Now, I know you're going, man, I remember a lot of patriarchs and matriarchs, but I don't remember the, na- don't remember the name Josebed. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23. get a little lesson here on uh, how we tear apart a verse and how we use our pronouns to understand what God's talking about. This is another woman that often isn't mentioned. She's, she's one of the great women of faith, and she's in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23. Do you see her there? It says, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. There's the first appearance of her. Now look at the next phrase. Because they, there she is right there. I thought that was fascinating. Many people have written a lot of books on uh, influential women in the scriptures, but I think some of them lack her. I think she's an amazing woman because they saw that he was a beautiful child and they, look at, look at this, they were not afraid of the king. This woman says, that's my baby, I'll die protecting this child. Don't you love her now? She's, isn't she a beautiful woman? She fights for her child, and so here she is, even in the hall of faith of Hebrews chapter 11. And this tells you that Moses and uh, Josebed were working together on this. This wasn't just, you know, kind of, I think you have a picture of Sunday school, you know, and Moses is out tromping around in the mud making bricks for Pharaoh, and she's doing all of this. He may be doing that, but they are working together to protect this very chosen child that they believe God has given them. So this, is, this is becomes a family fair. Look at verse 4. His sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. So here's who we know is to be later named as Miriam. And, and, and Miriam, she's part of this family. And so this whole family is coming together. How are we going to protect this little this little boy. And so now big sis is involved in this. And this is, this is of course, um, Miriam who marries Aaron who becomes the lead of the priestly tribe of Levi, right? And, and we'll see here just in a minute, this is a quick-thinking little girl. She's a quick-thinking little girl and she's precious to study as well. Now, verses five and six. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to, the, uh, to bathe at the Nile with her maidens walking along, uh, alongside the Nile. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid, and she brought it to her. And she opened it up, and she saw the child. And behold, the boy was crying, and she had pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrew children. Again, God is using the unique heart of a woman here. Again, Man, we are under attack, aren't we, of the church? I mean, we just, we've been talking about in the office how much is going on right now within the media and the, and the new presidential candidates and all this stuff. The attack against the genders and the beautiful roles that God has made. Attack against the church and already talking very strongly about getting rid of tax exemption and attacking the church through those who won't hold to it. But why would you want to do this? God, God uniquely designs women. And, and I think, again, you see this unique heart of a woman in the preservation of, of Moses here, and, and ultimately the seed of Christ. And, and with big sis Miriam watching from the shore, um, here comes Pharaoh's own daughter. You can see it happening. We believe this is Hapshashah. 
I can't pronounce her name. Um, it, she's possibly the one that becomes the one queen, of Eng, uh, one queen or pharaoh later on. And I think maybe, if this is true, if this is true of her, it's hard to tell totally and be sure of all of this, as we talked about last week. Um, but God may have blessed this woman because of her stance here, because of what she has done. And, and notice, as this little ark is retrieved, it's opened up, and, and the Bible says she has pity. It wasn't like she, oh, well, here's another poor Hebrew child. It's, it means she had a deep compassion for this child. This is a child of another race. This is a child of shepherds. This is a child of the unclean, of those that are dirty, that we don't want to be a part. This is God doing something again miraculous in this woman's heart, but using the nature of a woman. I mean, when my boys got hurt, they would run right back by me to who? Yeah. Like, well. <laughs> You know, you're going, yeah, you're okay. Let's go. <laughs> Mom's over there. Let's go in. Let's get some peroxide, you know, all that stuff. They're going, come on, we got to go. The fence needs to be built. Because they're compassionate people, aren't they? And you think about this setting here. God, God's moving in yet another woman's heart in order to protect the deliverer, the human deliverer of Israel. Now, doubtlessly, there's soldiers nearby. These gals are not just walking, you know, down the river having a party. Somebody's close and watching them. I mean, you know pharaohs are getting knocked off down through. There were probably 18, 20 dynasties into Egypt now. They've got to have soldiers. One cry, one yell by her, and that baby's dead. Because those soldiers know to kill those boys. And God's at work here. Uh, maybe she's been down there before and seen dead baby bodies floating down. I mean, she's seen this, and, but she knows. And this little Moses, this little Moses should have been killed so many different ways. But God's got a plan. And he uses wicked Pharaoh's daughter <laughs> of all places. You know, don't never be surprised what God uses. You should be going, I don't know, how's God going to save my child or uh, this difficult person at work or, or whatever it may be? And you should be involved in it, but don't be surprised when he does just amazing things as he draws people to himself or even uses the wicked to accomplish something. This lady was godless. She bowed down to frogs and the Nile and the sun gods and all of those things. And yet God used her to rescue the future human deliverer of Egypt. Now notice again in verse 7, then little sis said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew woman, woman that, that she may nurse the child for you? So here little sis, Mar uh, Miriam, she's, she appears and quickly she, she knows what to say. I, I know a nurse. I know someone who could help you with your new baby you have. <laughs> she's sharp, man. And, and so God uses uh, Josebed, now using Miriam, he's using Pharaoh's daughter to thwart the evil plan of a Pharaoh to preserve this life. Isn't that amazing? So far, all of our heroes of Exodus are mostly women right now. Isn't that amazing? And people bash on the Bible and they, you know, Bible and the Christians are just a bunch of, you know, what's the word for men when they're chauvinist and all that stuff? Yeah, thank you. Um, man, look what God does. And, and uh, you know, you, maybe you could see the heading in the Nile Times, you know, maybe 20 years later, God uses baby killer's daughter to save a nation, you know. 
<laughs> what a great headline. Notice verse 8 and 10. Pharaoh's daughter said, go ahead. So the little girl went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And the child grew and she brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. And she named him Moses and said, because I drew him out of the water. Wow, I wonder what went through Josephed's mind and heart as she delivered her son to the palace at the end of that. I think it was full of praise, because here's why. God, I did what was right. You, you, you wouldn't let me, you wouldn't let me stop protecting this child. You put an intense love for this child. I knew it was something special. We laid our lives on the line to believe you. We chose to believe God rather than man. We chose to obey God rather than man. I think she willingly took this son up and maybe possibly think about this on her way to the palace after the years of teaching and, and doubtlessly training him. Weaned ages around this time often were, were you know, pre-adolescent most likely, but he could have been 10 to 12 uh, years old. And so he learned of the nation of Israel and they taught him and trained him all, listen, all under the, pre, the, excuse me, the, the funding of the palace. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? We, they went from hiding this child to them now paying for his protection and his upbringing. Do you think God can't do impossible things? So I believe she was full of praise to the living God. Maybe God motivated her to pray her son would be a deliverer of the, his, their people. She must have known he was special and maybe as she handed him off, prayers under her breath might have said, God delivered us. Use Moses. I don't know, just some thoughts. But I think there's a great connection also between Josephed and the, Mar and the mother of Mary. I think they're both chosen women who brought children into this world to be deliverers. And they knew their sons were going to do something amazing. And they treasured in their heart often what God had done. A humble woman. And humble, godly women do great things for Christ. And verse 10 reminds us that here the name change, even the name change as this Pharaoh's daughter does is, is prophetic. It's prophetic. This is the one who will draw out, um, drawn out of the water, but he's actually going to draw the nation right out from underneath Pharaoh. So, dear Christian, when you... When you know and you believe the Bible and you watch a sovereign God work, it should bring great encouragement to you. He knows what you're going through. Do what's right. Uh, just, we, something we just talked to our boys over and over growing up. Honor God. Honor God. Ask Him to help you to do it from your heart. It, it may cost you at times and you may think you lose this or lose that. Honor the Lord. Honor the Lord. And he will bless and he will bring great joy to you. Number two, the right man, the right mission, the wrong way. <laughs> the right man, the right mission, the wrong way. Notice verses 11 
and through 15, let me just read this set. Now it came about in those days when Moses had grown up that he went, about, went out to his brethren and looked on the hard labors. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that, and when he saw that there was no one around, he struck the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And he went out the next day, and behold, two Hebrews were fighting with each other. And he said to the offender, Why are you striking your companion? But he said, Who made you prince or judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and said, Surely the matter has become known. And when Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Well, the Bible does not tell us how... um, Excuse me, the Bible does not tell us how, but how Moses knew who what he was. I mean, it just it's not real clear how he was going to be this deliverer. But in as you read this text, you begin to start to understand Moses has an understanding that he is supposed to deliver this nation. And I'm gonna prove this as we go along. I, I believe his early training from his parents helped in this. He understood the history of the nation, the knowledge of a true living God. But it is also, again, in the New Testament that we begin to understand. Did you still have your finger in Acts chapter 7? Look there again with me, Acts chapter 7. Stephen helps fill in some more of this for us. I told you to keep your finger, and I don't have mine in there. Acts chapter 7, verse 23 But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. Entered his mind. He's 40 years old. He's possibly been been in the Egyptian palace for 28 years, 30 years. Trained and raised and given the best of everything. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian verse 25 and he supposed that his brethren now look at this understood that God was granting them deliverance through him he knows something doesn't he when he goes out from the palace to see what's going on with his people he has in his heart some kind of understanding from God that he's a deliverer that's amazing isn't it but they did not understand. And clear, that's in the narrative as well. And so this section does reveal that, that Moses knew he was a Hebrew, right? Verse 11, he, he, he knows he's a Hebrew. Moses knew his people, and he knew they were wrongly being enslaved, and, and he was greatly bothered by their mistreatment. And in verses 12 and 13, as we read, here we see Moses starting his human attempt. He has a human attempt. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go out there and you know, be an avenger. I don't know which one he wanted to be, um, but you can tell he's going to fail here soon. But he's going out to try to avenge his people. He's going to try to be the. Pe- he's going to try to deliver these people, but he's going to do it the wrong way. It's also clear that Moses had made a great decision in his life, so he he decided that this is what he needs to do. So I mean, just imagine. I think I'm supposed to deliver these people. I think I'm going to go outside and see what's going on with these people. Oh, there's a guy beating up one of my guys. Kills him and buries him in the sand. Some, I mean, he's, it's amazing what's happening. He's misinterpreting what God wants him to do. 
He's, he's the right man. It's the right mission. But he's doing it wrong. And he doubtlessly believed God wanted him to do something here. And so, so even though his attempt failed and was sinful, he took the law into his own hands um, here. He, he wasn't trusting God in those things. He knew it was wrong to do because he buried his body. It is clear Moses knew it was time to leave. Look at one more passage here. Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to go back there because um, it keeps adding uh, insights to the story. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of the, of the Pharaoh's daughter. That was an interesting conversation. Now, he's 40, but, you know, you, maybe you've had these. I don't belong to this family. <laughs> he really didn't, but he refused to be called that way. So somewhere along the line, he said, I am, I am not an Egyptian You've dressed me, you've trained me, you've done all these things, but I'm not an Egyptian. Verse 25, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Wow. A lot of work has to be done there, but just real quickly, think about this. God's word is talking about this worldly life that he was very much a part of as sinful. And it was sinful for him to be opposing the people that God made him. So he had a calling and he, and he had a place he was supposed to be and it was against God's will for him to leave that. And he recognized that. Now look at verse 26. This one's just gonna stagger you just a bit. Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt for he was looking to the reward. What? Do you think when we talk about biblical theology, and we talk about that a lot here, that we're, we love systematic, and we talk about you know, bibliology and theology proper and Christology and so forth, those are important things, but we talk about biblical theology a lot around here, meaning there is a theme that runs through the Old Testament. It connects it all together. Do you think we're just saying this for fun of it? Here's a man, probably 1,500,000 years be before even the life of Christ comes along, who Hebrews records that he knew there was a Messiah coming. He believed it. No wonder he was motivated. Yeah, he did things the wrong way. Killing a guy is not the way to do this. But he knew there was one coming. So all this means that at the age of 40, Moses renounces his right as a son of the royal daughter. That was a costly renunciation. He went from very witch to broke. Very quickly. Amazingly, the Hebrews tell us um, that he considered this decision. Hebrews tells us he considered the decision for the sake of the Messiah. It's amazing. As Moses goes out to his own people, it's, it's clear the teaching of his parents must hit home. He truly identifies with them. He feels their burdens upon his heart. He sees the beating of a fellow Hebrew. He reacts to it. That tells us what the daily life of the Hebrew was like because he just walks out there and here's a beating taking place. So this is, this is what he sees. This is what's going on with the nation. This must have been a severe beating for Moses to kill the guy. Um, but he was also convinced of his calling. Notice verse 13 and 14. I think this is important. Remember, he goes out the next day, and he beholds two Hebrews fighting um, with each other, and he said to the defender, why are you striking your companion? And of course, they make this kind of smart aleck remark here. Who made you prince or judge over us? Isn't this text interesting? One of the things this text tells you 
is Moses is not going after this really great, you know, Christian group of people. <laughs> oh, these God-fearers of the living God. The Hebrews coming from Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, and Jacob. These people are a mess. <laughs> they're fighting with each other. They, they, you know, they've already got the gossip rumor going, you know, well, you're going to kill us like you did that other guy? I mean, you, they, they're a mess. And the Bible tells us over and over, one in Deuteronomy chapter 7, that God says, I didn't choose you because of you, because you're great in numbers and you're great people. <laughs> Other places, and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and places like that, there's statements where he says, I chose you when you were in your blood, laying on the ground. You were going to die. There was nothing valuable in you. I chose you then. And so I think what this hit me as I was studying this is this is not this perfect group of people. There are lost sinners who need a Messiah. And he happens to be coming through their neighbor, right through their, their own people, through Judah. Now again, we see the sovereign plan of God as he chooses uh, to use Moses to do this. So Moses now seems somewhat surprised at this remark. And, and he tries, he's trying to deliver them. He's, he's trying to do it his way. But they don't seem to recognize that. That would be frustrating. I got a calling and nobody, nobody recognizes it. And they make this remark, um, prince or judge here. Notice, notice that in verse 14. Who made you prince or judge? It's a, it's a strong statement. It means who gave you royal privileges to pass judgment is the idea of the Hebrew phrase. We heard you left. <laughs> We heard you gave up what you had. Who do you think you are to do these things? Look at the end of 14. Then Moses was afraid. He said, surely this matter has become known. So how Moses correctly assesses things. He realizes, uh-oh, the word's out that I murdered this guy, and it won't take long for Pharaoh to know. And since, and remember, when, when, um, when Cain kills Abel, God spares his life. In Genesis chapter 9, they get off that boat, one of the first things God does with Noah is he says, life for life now. I protect it. The sense of Cain, they're all wiped out now. And now there's capital punishment. And that is not interesting, given to Noah, but it is all over the world now. Take a life, there's another life. So Moses knows this. And so he knows that Pharaoh's going to ex- uh, exact revenge here. And so Moses' sin is, is not hard to understand from our perspective, but this must have been some beating that was going on. Uh, and so he, uh, he went after this. Notice verse 15. I've got to speed up here and get done with this. Um, when Pharaoh heard the matter, he tried to kill Joseph. But Joseph fled from the presence of Pharaoh, and he settled in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Well, in time, Pharaoh certainly heard about the, Mos- uh, heard about the murder that Moses committed, and he's now after Moses. The Bible doesn't tell us how he got out. I'm sure um, he had a lot of pull still. Probably a lot of people knew him. But somehow the deliverer now is out. And he's no longer in Egypt. Point three, God gives Moses a helpmate and a new family. Oh, I love this little section of scripture here. Notice in verse 15, he fled and he settled in the land of Midian and he sat down by a well. Well, Moses needed some time with God, didn't he? Clearly, he tried to do it his way. Anybody done this? And it didn't work. (laughs) <laughs> we've all been the Moses of that evidence. So Moses needs time with God. He needs time with God. He needs to understand how God is going to deliver his people. And it's not by his strength. He needs to learn that. But before this, Moses needs a helpmate, and he needs a family. Think about what he's lost. He's now lost both his Hebrew family and his Egyptian family. 
He's alone, man. Can you imagine running for your life? You have no one to turn to. You can't trust the Egyptians because they may turn you. And now your own people say, well, what are you doing, going to kill us? Now you can't trust them. And you're running around out in the desert. That's a lonely feeling. And he's all alone here. Notice verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the trough uh, to, the water, to water their, their father's flocks. So God providentially directs Moses uh, to his new wife here and, and future family. And again, Moses being an Israelite, he, he was a shepherd, so he, he was not dumb. He, he, he headed for a well. He wanted to go find somewhere where there was water. He's in the desert. And if you find water, you find livestock, you find people. And here he found seven girls. They happen to be the daughter of a Midian priest. And isn't it interesting, as we see him kind of cowboy up in verse 17, um, then the shepherds came, these are not nice men, and drove them away. So here comes these seven girls, they're, they're shepherdess, they're bringing their flocks in to, to, to the well, and they've got to be watered there. And it takes a lot of work, and I'll explain that here in a moment. But, but Moses, notice in verse 17, Moses stood up to them. And he helped them, and he, he watered the flock. And so this confrontation arises again in Moses' life, and these rival shepherds are trying to take advantage of all the work Moses did so they didn't have to do it. This is time-consuming, because later the father's going to go, what are you back so soon for? That it tells you that would have taken a lot of time to, to water that many flocks, drive them all the way to the well, drive them back. It would have taken a lot of time. They go, what are you doing so back? So they, these guys see Moses doing all the work. They want to come in, get the water, push these girls around, and so forth. And Moses says, uh, no, that's not going to happen. And I don't know if he used it, but look, I just killed an Egyptian. Back off. There seems to be, he has some confidence there as he takes on these guys. Verse 18. And when they came to Ruul, his father which is later to be known as Jethro. He has several names, doubtlessly. Why have you come back so soon? The girls are back. There's a lot of, there's a lot of time in this. Um, one of the things that we, we're talking, and I were talking about this a little bit on the ranch uh, today, where I was sharing this with her, and I said, it's just time-consuming, right? There's, in, in the winter, when you're feeding, you're, you, know, you go out, you got to break ice, so you can, the cattle can get to the water, you got to load trucks, you, if it's full of snow, you got to get tractors. It just takes a ton of time to get chores done. And they're back already. So he notices something's different here. And he, he sees that they have returned. And, the, and he wants to know why they are back so soon. And they said to him in verse 19, An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. And what is more, he even drew the water for us. This is a big deal what he did. This isn't like he reached down and got a little cup of water and threw it out. I mean, this might have taken quite some time to feed uh, a, a, a large group of animals. And what's more, he drew the water for us and, and, and watered our flocks. So here the girls start to relate the story of this Egyptian deliverer, right? He's, he's acting like a deliverer already, isn't he? He's done it wrong. Now, now he's out in the desert to figure out how God wants us done, but he's already doing what God says. Guys, let me say this. People who want to be in leadership lead long before they're ever in leadership. As, as a pastor that's trained many elders through the years and watched them, we see men serving before they're ever recognized. And that's what they do. And so he just said, leader, isn't he? He comes to this well. He's just thirsty. He's out running around from Hebrews and Egyptians. He's out in the middle of the desert. Hey, there's a problem. I'm going to step up, get rid of these guys, feed, get water for these girls. He's just got character. He's leading. He's a deliverer. He delivered these girls already. He just has that in him. So 
an Egyptian delivered us. Notice that term. You can't miss that in verse 19. He delivered us. Verse 20 is great. He said to his daughters, well, where is he? <laughs> Who is this guy? Why, why is it that you have left him behind? Invite him to have food with us. Get him back here for dinner. You know, I got seven daughters. I got to get rid of some of them here. Maybe he's thinking that. I need some help around this place. So the girl's father seems to be incensed that they left this man behind. Go get him. He's probably still sitting by the well. Verse 21, Moses was willing to dwell with the man and he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses. So it's see, clearly Moses accepted the dinner invitation and he never left. So certainly over a span of time, Moses marries Zipporah and remains in the camp, doubtlessly taking care of his father's livestock. But it's important to understand he's in the land of Midian, and I want you to just take a moment to make sure you know where he's at. In Genesis 25, 2, this is one of Abraham's younger sons. So God did not send him out into a pagan society there to find a wife or, or something. He is sent to family. This is, this is the descendants of Abraham. And though he's a priest of some sort of Midian, it's very hard to understand exactly what he did. The Bible, New Testament, calls him one who was a friend of God. So whatever he's involved in, he seems to have a true relationship with God. So, so here, um, God sends him there. One more time back to Acts chapter 7. Just one note here that Stephen adds that I think is worth looking at. Um, and then we'll, we'll wrap this up. 29 through 30. At this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. After 40 years had passed, the angel prepared, uh, an angel prepared him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning bush. So you can see what God's doing, and, and, and Stephen wants to get this down in the narrative here that Moses was an alien there, but at the same time he was a land of Midian. This is the descendants of Abraham, and it is there God will appear to him. And it's interesting that God sent Moses there versus somewhere else. And his father-in-law is known as a friend of God. He's safe as he learns. Verse 22, after Joseph marries Zipporah, he has a son, and he names him uh, Geshem, and that means an alien or a foreigner here. So you can see, he knows he's not supposed to be there. He knows God has a job for him to do. He might be fighting it now because he tried to do it his way and failed. Now, finally, God's watching over his people. Just the last few verses here, um, just to wrap this up quickly. Now, it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died and the sons of Israel uh, sighed because of the uh, homage, I mean the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry for help because their, bond, their bondage arose up to God. So God heard their groaning. God remembered His covenant with Adam, uh, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God saw that the sons of Israel saw the sons of Israel, and He took notice of them. Well, the narrative. What I, what I love about this narrative is it just doesn't skip over forty years of what's going on in Egypt. Because the scene, right, shifts and the scene goes with, Abraham, uh, goes with Moses as he goes out into the wilderness. But now he doesn't want to let you know, doesn't want you to forget what's going back on in Egypt. And so it says over these 40, these years that, that he's spending out there, things are difficult. And this Pharaoh dies that wants to kill um, 
Moses, that's, that's good because now he'll be able to come back in because the new pharaohs really don't care what the old pharaohs did. But more importantly than that is these people are getting to a point where they can't take it anymore. And you go, why does God let it go so far? Why does he let it go so far? It says they cry out. The, the Hebrew term means to be born out of pain and misery. It's a cry out of pain and misery. Why does God let it go so far? Well, I think there's several reasons for it. If I just can just give me one moment. I think God's bringing them to the end of themselves that they have nothing else but him. And he does that with you and I, doesn't he? He will let us struggle along as long as we think we can figure out how to get out of something. There are times God will bring you to the brink where you have nothing left but him. And I think he's doing that with his nation. He does not want them to think by their own strength they came out of Egypt. Or Pharaoh just said, oh, go ahead, I'm tired of you people. He wants them to understand that I have my hand in this. I've brought you to the brink where you know that it must be God and God alone to do this. I've exercised my power and my authority over all of creation to show you this. And your faith needs to be in me. And I think that's what he does. And, and the Bible says he remembered his covenant. It's not like he forgot it. When, when the Bible says he remembered something, it means it's a prelude to him about ready to act. When you see that, you go, oh yeah, oh yeah, whoa, I forgot about those two million people there in the Goshen. That's not, what, that's not the way the words are used. It means every time it says that it's a prelude, he's about ready to do something. And he was. Just like he remembered Noah, the Bible uses the same word there. God never forgets his covenant. He never forgets who he gave the covenants to. He never forgets what's in the covenant. And he certainly knows how to fulfill the covenant. And that's what he does. And his children acknowledge him. So in closing, when's the last time you cried out to God? Have you ever cried out to God? That's what salvation is. Salvation is when the point when we get to the point and we say, God, I have nothing to offer you. All of my works are sinful and, and filthy rags. I have nothing to offer you. I can make no credit if you save me, God. I'm at that point. That's what happens at salvation. I think too often I've heard people say this. Well, we, we think he's saved. Hmm. You're going to see blind Bartimaeus Sunday in Mark 10. Watch what he does. It isn't, well, I think I'll follow Jesus. When you're lost and you know you're headed to hell, you cry out for him to save you. You need a deliverer. And you got nothing in your hands. You come empty-handed. And I think that's what he's doing with them. He's got them right where they're crying out for him. And you'll see next week, here comes, um, here comes Moses. Here comes Moses. God's going to bring him. Father, thank you for the reminder of this. We know that life is difficult here, Lord. We live in a very fallen, sinful world, Lord. And yet we, like Moses, try to do things our way. We know you've given us a calling. We know you have something for us to do. But sometimes we try to head out in that morning and do it our way. And all it does is turn into a sinful event. So Lord, I pray that you would continue to put us in a place where we trust your providence and that we would cry out to you to help us. 
Lord, we know that you are faithful. You fulfill the promise to us. You've already done it. You sent your son. You've redeemed us. But you have not forgotten us, even in the land of despair that we live in sometimes. You hear our cries, Lord. May we trust you that you'll finish all this. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.